you didn't know. Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 40. We're just covering two verses today uh, for our time together. We are going through the Gospel of Luke, and hopefully you will be encouraged. And if you desire the Word of God, um, that should, should happen. All right. Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 40 is our text. Uh, it's not going to be a long uh, sermon today. We're covering two verses, but afterwards we do have a potluck for us to get to. And so uh, if you want to join us, even if you did not bring food, please join us anyway. Uh, we'll bust on you later for freeloading the food. <laughs> Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 40 is our passage. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And this is the word of the Lord. To you be the glory, to you be the honor, God. You are worthy to be praised. We, at times, forget that you deserve the honor due to you. And so, God, if we have fallen short, which we have, if we have not come to that realization, Lord God, that you are deserving of all, which we at times fall short in doing throughout the week. We pray, God, that today our eyes will be fixed on you, that our joy and our delight will be fixed on you. So, God, I pray that there will be no distractions in our ears and our eyes, that we will look completely to you as our help. God, I pray that you will fill our hearts with joy and thanksgiving, that you will be glorified. So, God, help me to take my eyes off of people and put them on you. And I pray that people will put their eyes and trust in you, that this would not be about a sermon that could keep people awake, but it could be a sermon that glorifies you. And so, God, I pray that our attention and our desire and our hearts will be fixed on you today. You are what matters. We're here for you. We're not here for men. We're not here for anything else but to glorify you today. And to remember that you deserve it throughout the week. We love and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Praise God. I loaded up the wrong sermon. Let me get to this. There we go. All right. Praise the Lord. I'm just keeping it real, y'all what it is. All right. Article 4 of our denomination, of our belief, Article 4, Section 1, says this about God the Son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Word, the eternal and true God who is of one substance and equal with the Father. He took on himself man's nature with all of its essential properties except sin. Being conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he embodied two perfect and distinct natures in one person. He is truly God and truly man, the only mediator between God and man. Amen? Amen. So Article 4 comes from several passages in Scripture that prove Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, the eternal true God who is of one substance and equal with the Father. Jesus took on man's nature with all of its essential properties except sin. 
He embodied two perfect and distinct natures in one person. He is truly God and truly man, fully God and fully man, the only mediator between God and man. And so he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and we at Christ Alone Fellowship here in this church believe Jesus to be existing prior to becoming a man who always was and will be God. Amen. Amen. Which means that when he became a man, it was a volitional act and an act where he came down from where he was. Hebrews 2.9 tells us that Jesus for a little while was made lower than the angels, which was quoted from Psalm chapter 8. So what we're seeing here today is God the Son, who lowered himself in the incarnation to be a man like us, which shows us the most amazing display of humility. There is no greater example of humility other than Christ coming down to be like us. And so our points today for our sermon, just two, point number one in verse 39, the humility of Christ, the humility of Christ in verse 39, and the humanity of Christ in verse 40, the humanity of Christ in verse 40. Those are our two points for today. Verse 39 says, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. One thing you might not have seen in this particular verse, in verse 39, something that's very significant, and it's our first sub-point to our passage here today, is that the lawgiver submits himself to his own law. The lawgiver, Jesus, who is God, submits himself to his own law. There were two things required of Mary and Joseph here prior to our text. The first involved Jesus to be circumcised on the eighth day, and the second involved the purification of Mary, which involved the giving of a sacrifice. If you remember, and if you, have, if you weren't here, just go to YouTube, Christ Alone Fellowship on YouTube, and look at the sermon last week for more explanation, but their observance of the law came from Leviticus chapter 12, which happened before Jesus was born. Mary and Joseph had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, and it was the Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of Mary. And so the reason why Christians believe that Jesus existed prior to the incarnation, it comes from the testimony of Holy Scripture. That's why we believe Jesus existed before. But some of y'all already know that I'm in seminary right now, which is going well, uh, other than the pressure of writing a paper and then having, uh, you know, uh, how can I say this nicely? Having a professor who still struggles in the fallen world. The reason why I say that is because sometimes I thought I should have gotten 100%. You know what I'm saying? So we got to pray for our professors. But in a paper I submitted to Reverend Tom Winger at Metro Baltimore Seminary, dealing with the Trinity, I wanted to prove from the Old Testament that Jesus was already existing as God the Son. So in the Old Testament, I believe it's clear that the Father is called Lord, right? We all would agree with that. He's the potter. He's the one who created everyone. But I wanted us to look at the Old Testament passages that speak of Jesus as the Son. The first I want to point is Psalm 45, 6-7, where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Right? So Psalm 45 is talking about God. We would all agree. It's interesting because Hebrews 1, 8 through 9 says, but of the Son, he says, and quotes Psalm 45, 6 through 7. But of the Son, he says, and then he quotes the Psalms, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, who's God? The Son, right? Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Hebrews 1, 8 through 9. So the author of Hebrews quoted from the psalm explaining that the son who was anointed was Jesus. And the psalm spoke of Jesus as God. Very clear, in case y'all didn't know. When answering the Pharisees in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew chapter 22, Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 20, Jesus asked, Jesus asked about the Christ where he quoted from Psalm 110.1 where it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus used this to say that David in the spirit at that time called Jesus Lord even before he was born. Then he says in Matthew 22, 43 to 44, he said to them, this is Jesus talking, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So in the, Jesus is just saying, look, I was acknowledged as Lord even from the beginning. I didn't have to wait till I was born because I sat on the throne ruling all heaven and earth already. And it's in my blog, listen, man, it's just crazy to think that he would even condescend to our level when he sat so high. In the Proverbs, there's a reference to the one who established the, uh, you know, the ends of the earth. The Proverbs ask several questions about God. Uh, write this down, Proverbs 30, chapter 4. Now, this is controversial because some literalists, like I had a professor back in 2013 uh, he didn't like prophetic readings in the Old Testament. He thought it was taking it too far. Let's just leave them for their immediate meaning. But Proverbs 34, I believe, speak about Christ. Proverbs 30, ch uh, chapter 30, verse 4 says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Who does that sound like? Sound like God. What's his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. We definitely know. These passages reveal references to the son as God. Jesus is the son who was sent by the father to do what the father willed. And Jesus did it willingly. And he did it in full submission. So when Jesus was born, it was planned by the father given to the Son to do the work, and by the Holy Spirit, it was applied. This was a pre-planned, pre-ordained plan by God where he would draw a people to himself who were undeserving. Can I get an amen on that? Because that's you. That's me. We didn't deserve to be drawn. We were fine in our sin. 
We were lost. We weren't looking for God. We weren't seeking God. God is the seeker. He sought us and brought us in. Jesus, who is God the Son, submitted to this plan. And it took it not only to be born and dependent on Mary and Joseph to care for him. This also took him to his death. This is what stunned the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, where Paul told believers not to look to their own interests, just as Christ did not look to his own as a man. Jesus sought to complete the will of God for our interests over his. Paul spoke of this being what our minds should be as it was in Christ. Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As if it wasn't enough for him to degrade himself, to be born, to be dependent, to actually be changed, <laughs> you know, like to be changed by sinful people, God in the flesh being changed depending on milk, depending on nourishment from his parents. But he emptied himself. Not of, not of his deity, which some people teach in a church. Jesus did not stop being God when he was born. He continued to be God, but the mystery is that God in the flesh was a baby, dependent to be held, to be changed, to be fed. So if Jesus being born was that humbling, Jesus coming from heaven, powerful and in full display, if he came down and humbled himself so low and becoming obedient to the point of death, how can we who are called to follow him withhold from submitting ourselves to him? Have we forgotten what Jesus being born meant? That the infinite son of God who reigned over angels, who displayed beauty and majesty, became a man despised and rejected. This is what our minds should be as it was in Christ, to be humble towards one another. So the birth of Jesus was in our best interest, which is the motto of how we are to live towards one another today. He was born under the law, born of a woman, and this being the greatest act of humility that brought us to saving faith. When we act in pride or act out our pride, listen, we're going against the very act that brought us to faith. Ever been prideful? You know, sometimes when we're prideful, we're very vocal, right? We like to tell people what we think. Pride, according to Stephen Charnock, said, pride is self-contending with God for preeminence. Pride is self-contending with God for preeminence. Your pride is speaking very low of you. Because pride tends to, you know, when you're prideful and you're full of pride, you want preeminence. You want position. You want to exert power over other people. That's why, you know, there are churches that are full of pastors that are so prideful that their sermons, their ministry, their vision is all so that other people can submit to that vision. And they control people in crowds in doing so. But the Bible doesn't teach us to do that. God is the one who's preeminent. God is the one who's in charge. 
And if you didn't know, because life sometimes has a funny way of showing you you're not in control, that happens to show you who's actually in control. Sometimes we're humbled by circumstances that happen in our lives. Pride is self-contending with God for preeminence. There was no pride in Jesus in being born of a woman. Pride, according to the Hebrew scriptures, also in the Septuagint meant haughtiness, defiance, arrogance, high and lifted up, boastful, conceited, insolent, lofty, presumptuous, high-minded royalty. None of which Jesus had as a man, though he could have bragged about his royalty, his position. You don't see Jesus bragging about it. You don't even see Jesus exerting his power over other people. He simply was a servant. From his birth, he was completely humble, which is the example we are given in how we are to treat each other today. The birth, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ is how we are to live out our faith to the world and also to one another. Not only was this an act of humility on the part of the Son of God, but also this was again much travel on the part of the family. The family returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So Joseph and Mary returned there where the angel Gabriel visited Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And because of needing registered, if you remember, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, down to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And when they have performed all these things according to the law, they go back to where they came from. Hundreds of miles to travel to do what God called them to do. And man, some of y'all struggle to come on church on Sunday. Even me. Maybe make that very clear. Y'all ain't the only one. I got up this morning. I had some good sleep. Finally. Because I be getting up in the middle of the night, and I don't want to read nothing, and I get on my phone. I'm just, like, looking at some YouTube videos, just some interesting stuff that happens. And I've, I've been waking up in the middle of the night just unable to have some sleep. A brother gave me some advice. I implemented the advice last night, and I slept like a rock. Praise the Lord. So I got up today. I was just like, man, I don't want to get up today. I got to be at coffee. I got to be at church at 8 o'clock. So we actually, we were planning to be here at 8. We got here like at 8.15. And of course, it's Lynette's fault, not mine. So. I get it. I get it where you, there, there are things that God calls you to do, that you're supposed to do, but you don't want to do. I see Joseph and Mary traveling from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem, all the way to Jerusalem, to hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles to do what God has called them to do. Luke 4.16 tells us that this is where Jesus was being brought up, where Jesus was often called Jesus of Nazareth. That's why he's called Jesus of Nazareth, because that's where he grew up. In fact, all four gospel accounts account for him call, being called Jesus of Nazareth. This is where he grew up and became strong, which is our second point and last, the humanity of Christ in verse 40. And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Jesus grew and became strong. Oh, the same thing was said about John the Baptist in a previous chapter. 
John the Baptist in Luke 180, the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John the Baptist also grew and became strong. To grow here means to grow physically. From a baby, Jesus will grow to be a boy and then to be a man. Jesus was a man. Just as John the Baptist grew to be a boy and a man, just like any other man, Jesus would also grow because he was fully and truly human. But he was God. God was growing in the incarnation. Not at, in his deity, but in being fully submissive as a man. Now, I got to be careful because I don't want to get a call from my fellowship and say, yo, you're preaching heresy. This is where it gets a little sketchy. We have to admit some mystery here. How, how can God cram himself up in a body to have full deity? We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus, who was fully God, was circumcised. Jesus wept. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus slept. He was weary. Jesus was tempted. He was a man. He grew and became strong, which takes us back to his humility. Prior to the incarnation, Jesus, who is God, God the Son, did not need to become stronger. The Psalms talk about how he neither sleeps nor slumbers. Here is Jesus sleeping. The all-powerful, omnipotent Son of God submitted himself in the incarnation. He humbled himself to become a man who needed to grow and who needed to become strong. Why is this so important for us to highlight? Why is this so important for us to guard, saints? Hebrews 4.15 says it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He knows what it's like to weep because of pain. He knows what it's like to be hungry when you don't have food. He knows what it's like to be thirsty and to be parched. He knows what it's like when you need sleep and rest. When you wake up in the middle of the night not able to sleep, Jesus felt that. He knows what it's like to be weary and burdened. He knows what it's like to be tempted as we are today, but he did not sin to God be the glory. He was a man like us who can sympathize, meaning that he has shared in our struggles and weaknesses. Jesus grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom. Filled with wisdom. Another mystery. Filled here means to make full. Wisdom was made full in Christ. Wisdom, which we get the word Sophia, means to have the capacity to understand, to act wisely, to be prudent, meaning to be judicious, shrewd, and cautious. So Jesus in the incarnation had to be filled with wisdom. Again, another example of humility since the fear of the Lord of him is the beginning of wisdom. So the beginning of wisdom became a man that had to be filled with wisdom. Explain that to me. Jesus in the incarnation had to be filled with wisdom. What a mystery. Martin Luther said the mystery of the humanity of Christ that he sunk himself into our flesh is beyond all human understanding. Yeah. 
We can't unpack this. We just have to believe it. So if Jesus needed filled with wisdom, who was himself the object and the beginning of wisdom, how much more us? He increased in wisdom and stature, Luke 2.52. If Jesus increased in wisdom, how much more us? Don't think you have it all together, saints. Don't think you can't be teachable. If somebody's telling you something from the word and you're wrong, accept it. There's wisdom in that. You're a fool if you're you know, not about correction. A fool despises correction. So if Jesus increased in wisdom, how much more us? He became a man so that he would become a living sacrifice for us who needed saving. He lived a life worth following. Jesus is not only the object of our worship, saints, but he also is the example we follow. How did Jesus deal with painful situations? How did Jesus deal with being hungry? How did Jesus deal with being thirsty? How did he deal with the lack of sleep? Where he had no where to lay his uh, head on. How did Jesus deal with being weary and burdened? How did Jesus deal with being tempted? Hello. The danger of our culture is that we bought into this question of what would Jesus do? Remember the bracelets? The t-shirts? Maybe I'm just old now. Are they still selling those? What would Jesus do? WWJD? You? Yeah, so, okay, so y'all ain't wearing those. That's a good thing, I think. But that, that sold millions. It was a catchy phrase. What would Jesus do in a situation like this? Wrong question. What has Jesus done is the better question. Because you can look at a situation and say, okay, what would the Lord do at this time? He's given you all the answers in his word already. What has Jesus done? What did he do with temptation? What did he do with being hungry? What did he do with a lack of sleep? What did he do with depression? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he wanted, in his humanity, felt the brunt of wanting to do other than God's will, what did he do? Let not my will, Lord, but your will be done. What has Jesus done is the better question. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he understands our situation. He acted wisely. He was prudent and judicious. He was shrewd and cautious. He practiced restraint since he could have called down legions of angels and wrecked everybody. What a great example of humility for us. Our problem is that we're filled with too much pride. Instead of growing in wisdom, we naturally grow in our sin. We lack wisdom when dealing with situations. We're prone to lack prudence. Being shrewd and cautious is lacking, especially in the culture we live today. We don't practice restraint today. We don't practice wisdom. There's no prudence in our culture today. There's just a need to be vocal, a need to grab attention, a need for clicks. But that's not what Jesus was about. Jesus was about humility. One last point. A sub-point is that Jesus was favored by God. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Why did Jesus need favor? If Jesus was God in the flesh, sinless, without any fault, then why would Jesus need the favor of God? Meaning, why would God need to look kindly upon Christ and look at Christ with special regard when he already had it? 
Why was it expressed in the incarnation? Well, as a man like every other man, Jesus needed the favor of God in order to do what the Father sent him to do. It's nice to know that you're favored by God. Because at times we don't feel like we're favored by God. You ever felt like that? Especially when you blew it. Especially when you made a mistake. Your wife or husband or somebody else might not be feeling you at the not giving you favor. I know if you diss me on the same day, it might take me a day. It might take me a day to get over on it. But for God, he favors you nonetheless. Martin Luther again said the mystery of the humanity of Christ that he sunk himself into our flesh is beyond human understanding. Jesus, like every other man in closing, needed the favor of God as a man, but it wasn't out of necessity because he was lacking favor. In fact, it was because we who were born in sin needed favor. He did it for us. Jesus grew because he was truly a man. Jesus became strong because he had grown from a previous weaker state. Jesus was filled with wisdom because he needed to be shrewd and wise. The favor of God was upon Jesus, making him a recipient of favor when he was always the one dispensing the favor. So Jesus went from giving favor to receiving it. Another act of great humility. And he did it for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So all that Jesus did, saints, he did it on our behalf. Amen. And so when this week comes, and it will, and you see yourself struggling in faith, you see yourself depressed, you see yourself going through life, and again, the week has a funny way of showing you your humanity and your fallenness, whether it be an argument, whether it be a situation where you're not handling it right, or maybe you have a sense of pride. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I used to work in, in you know, when I had a job, there were some supervisors that knew how to press the buttons, right? Don't you got people who know what buttons to push, right? They just know how to get under your skin. They just know how to bring out the whack part of you that you're trying to crucify every day, right? It's not their fault. God allows that to take place because we yet have still to be sanctified. That's what God does. He'll use a supervisor. He'll use an, a crazy situation to bring out this filth that you thought you had repented of. But know that through it all, when you come to him for repentance and you say, Lord, I thought I was done with this, but apparently not. I'm still prideful. I'm still selfish. You're still favored. He still brings you in. He deals with you. He works with you to send you out to be someone who can better represent him out in the world. So I thank God that my right relationship with God is not dependent on my actions my right relationship with God was dependent on someone else's, Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
That's why we trust him. That's why we love him. Because no matter how whack I am, I can still go to him. Because he's good. And he knows how it feels. Because he was fully and truly a man. So Lord, would you help us today to appreciate your sacrifice? And when those moments come, Lord God, would you help us to glorify you, to follow your example as a man? We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.